0: All right, everyone, as previously mentioned, a split sermon today by Mr. Reg Noland entitled Satan's Attack on Faith, The Methodology of Doubt, Part Two. Mr. Noland. This is the sequel. So, previously on the methodology of doubt, we begin by asking the question that Jesus asked in Luke 18, 8. Yet when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? This is no trivial question, for ever since his creation, Satan has been engaged in this insidious campaign of doubt, his most powerful weapon in his arsenal on his attack on faith, to undermine God's authority, to usurp his power, to destroy his precious creation, us, in an effort to hurt God. We establish the biblical definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1 1, as <clears throat> the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But we acknowledge that faith is much more than belief. For as James 2.19 tells us, the devils also believe and they tremble. And we, But for faith requires action. James 2.17 right above that says, for faith without works is dead. We identified the three principal targets of Satan's attack on faith as attacks on the divine dyad, God and Jesus, upon human society and upon the individual psyche. However, we were able to cover only the introductory material and the three-pronged attack on the attack on the divine dyad. In other words, making us doubt the existence of God of evolutionary theory and conflicting evidence but you know logic and a rational mind can defend that kind of attack making us doubt the identity of God and Jesus with the proliferation of gods that are not gods and with the and with the diabolically brilliant strategy of pre-corruption which makes Christ appear to be the counterfeit instead of the other way around okay? and by making us doubt the integrity of God that he would be true to his word, that he says what he means, and he means what he says. We concluded doubt. We concluded that doubting, the divine dyad, is an anathema to faith. And now, the continuation. Target two, human society. Many of you have witnessed a little bit too close to hand the dangers of Satan's attack on human society. Part of the reason for our doubt (coughs) precipitates from the fact that we live in communities of fallible human beings with self-centered, self-serving interests. Daily, particularly in an election year, we are exposed to the full array of human corruption and all the negative ads that convince us only that none of them are really worth our vote. None of them are really worth our vote. Relentless, probing journalists, our fourth estate, investigate our leaders, and often uncover the ulterior motives behind even apparent good works, so that we become suspicious of all, and often justifiably so. Turn to Nehemiah 9. We've been studying Nehemiah in our Bible studies uh, recently. A lot of good passages in there. You really need to look at that book if you haven't done so already. Nehemiah 9, verses 34 and 35 first. And our kings, our rulers, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law, nor listened to your commandments, and your words uh, with which you testified against them, for they have not served you in their kingdom, and your great goodness which, they gave, which you gave to them. And in the large and rich land, that's America, folks, not just Israel, which you gave before them, and they did not turn from their wicked ways. We can't even be sure of our own heart, though. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, The heart is deceitful among all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? A concept that dates back to ancient Greece, but is probably best expressed in the Arthurian legend, says, The land and the king are one. As goes the royal house, so goes the nation. As go the leaders and priests, so go the people. That is why God holds corrupt leaders and priests, particularly responsible for the welfare of this people. A society of corruption corrupts us all, for it makes us cynics with suspicion and doubt, filled with suspicion and doubt. We have lost our innocence, lost our ability to trust, and we are teaching our children not to trust, for their own safety, I might add. What's more, we have become comfortable with this view of mankind comfortable with distrust for we are we are skeptical of people who do apparently selfless acts wondering what's his motivation what's he in for what's he trying to get out of this all we view such acts with a jaundiced eye and actually are more comfortable if we know what the other person's profit motive is than if he's doing something purely altruistic Satan has succeeded in making us doubt one another, so we lock our houses, our cars, our minds, and our hearts to prevent thieves from breaking in and stealing our treasure. Cool, close to home for all you Bixby residents, right? Doubt has two allies in this battle to undermine our faith. They are fear and ignorance. Fear and ignorance. We fear what we do not understand, and we do not trust what we fear. Our defenses go up, we erect barriers to protect ourselves, but those barriers just further isolate us from what we fear in the first place, which then compounds the issue, making us more ignorant of what we're approaching, and hence more fearful. It is a vicious cycle, and it feeds upon itself. Satan also uses societal conformity to foster doubt. If certain traditions, customs, and beliefs, such as Christmas, Easter, Halloween, immortal souls, the Trinity, the Catholic, Protestant, heaven and hell paradigm, all of those things and many, many others, if they seem to be global in nature, then it takes great faith and courage to go against the tide, to stand on the promises, to stand firm on the rock and go against that overwhelming tide. The reasoning goes something like this. If all these people hold the same idea then surely there must be some grain of truth behind it? Certainly they could not all be wrong. Yes, they can. They can all be wrong. And they often are. Logic calls such fallacious reasoning common practice. The idea that everybody's doing it so it must be right. That's like saying, eat at Joe's place, 10,000 cockroaches couldn't be wrong. The widespread acceptance of such a belief is more a testimony to the evangelism of those who spread it than to the veracity of the belief. For example, we now know that the planets revolve around the sun in elliptical orbits. But for millennia, people believed in a geocentric universe with everything revolving around the Earth in perfect spheres. Such a belief was an easy and convenient way of explaining the apparent motion of the heavenly bodies, despite the anomalies of retrograde motion of Mars, for example. Uh, In fact, it was the search for the explanation of the anomalies that led Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo the truth of a heliocentric solar system with the sun at the center. They all suffered greatly for advocating such a position that was so contrary to the Roman Church and to popular accepted belief. The popular ble- belief about the geocentric universe was born out of ignorance and laziness, but other popular beliefs were soon were deliberate and perpetrated on uh, and deliberately perpetrated on humanity as lies. For example, the belief in magic, witches ghosts and other Halloween regulars, astrology, tarot cards, spiritualism and the other pseudosciences they're all deceptions, all deceptions designed to lead us away from God by offering alternative explanations for phenomena and undermining God's prohibitions against such things. They appeal to human intellectual vanity Vanity and a, a more natural, that is to say, non divine way of seeing the world. Two passages from Second Timothy are very accurately described this vanity Second Timothy 3 1 through 8. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Incontinent means, by the way, without self-control. Okay? <laughs> Not something else. Uh, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away for of this sort are they which creep into the houses that lead captive silly women laden with sins led away with diverse lusts this next line ever learning never able to come to the full knowledge of the truth if there were any description of america today that's it ever learning Internet access and everything of that nature. Ever learning, but never able to come to the full knowledge of the truth. Boy, doesn't that describe us. Now as James and Jambres stood with Moses, so also do these resist the truth. They are men of corrupt mind, reprobate concerning the face. Then Second Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables instead. This. Yes. Indeed, our whole planet is polluted with fables and myths and what I call stupid stitions, And the current popular belief is very, very strong tide so that unless we are firmly grounded in our beliefs, we may begin to doubt the truthfulness of those and lose faith. Further, without a firm foundation, a firm understanding of God's plan for mankind, we may infer doubt about God and thereby lose faith. From catastrophes that occur to human communities, think about all the things that we have seen happen in recent years. uh, This is the classic problem of evil, how do we reconcile the presence of evil with the existence of an omniscient, omnipotent, a benevolent God? How do we do that? How do we reconcile those without the knowledge of God and out, without the knowledge of second and third resurrections? that 's real cognitive dissonance here, because that there's a great difficulty reconciling their image of God with the massive loss of life that results from things like earthquake. Volcanic eruptions, floods, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, bombings, and other acts of human cruelty, which we can't even speak of. Even those of us with the knowledge are affected by the human suffering from these results, from such natural disasters and from acts of human monstrosity. But we know that our understanding is extremely limited and that God does nothing without purpose that he is a being that exists outside of time and can see the end from the beginning. He knows that all things work together to, for good for those that love God. And he, that he earnestly desires that none of us should perish, but he wants all of us to come to redem- repentance. Today, and this is important, today is not the only day of salvation. There's another one coming for many, many people. And he is actually, in his wisdom and his benevolence, he has actually shut up some people in unbelief so that they can be saved during the second resurrection. Turn to Romans 11, verses 30 to 34 for this. For as you then also then disbelieved God, but now have been shown mercy through their disbelief, Even so, these uh, also have not believed now, so that through your mercy, they may also obtain mercy. For God has shut up all in unbelief, so that he might show mercy to all. Because once you know something, you're accountable for it, right? But if you don't know it, you're shut away in unbelief at present. There's still hope. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor it is our faith that sure and certain knowledge that sustains us during these times of trials that gives us the firm foundation to stand upon and to, risk this, and to resist this strong current of popular opinion we must not give way to doubt the enemy of faith, lest it lead to dependency, despondency, depression, and despair. We have one of the highest suicide rates right now among teenagers of all time, and part of it is this despair. To compound the problem, Satan has his own champion, soon to arrive on the scene. Second Thessalonians two, verses seven to twelve for the mystery of lawlessness is already working. Only he is now holding back until it comes out of the mist. And then the lawless one shall be be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the breath of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Whose coming is in accordance with the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and all deceit went with all deceit of unrighteousness in those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth the love of the truth so that they might be saved and for this cause God sent them strong delusion that they should believe what? A lie, a lie. So that all those who do not believe the truth but delight in unrighteousness might be condemned. Make no mistake Satan's attack of doubt about human society is a global attack, turning us one against the other that we might destroy ourselves. Target three, our human psyche. Third target, we are personally the target of Satan's third a doubt attack on faith. Here he gets us to doubt ourselves. It is attacking against the individual psyche and while there's a, the number of ways that he can attack each individual psyche is nearly endless, I'm going to explore three principal attacks right now. They are the attack upon our worthiness, upon our lovability, and upon our salvation. His first attack is upon our worthiness. He brings to mind all the sins that we've ever committed. He is the accuser of the brethren after all. And he tries to get us to decline Christ's sacrifice with the thought, I'm not worthy of your sacrifice. I'm not worthy of your sacrifice. Of course you're not worthy. Of course you're not worthy. No one is worthy. But don't let that stop you. We were born in the sin." We were raised in sin. We were steeped in sin. We are committed to sin for as long as we shall live. It is our carnal nature. We are flesh and blood. And we will continue to sin as long as we are flesh and blood. You doubt your carnality? Take the hat pin test. Stick yourself in the arm with a hat pin see if it hurts. Are you carnal? Yeah, I am still have problems Romans 3 23 25 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being j- justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past that are past through the forbearance of God what are we worthy of Romans 6.23 tells us that. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To believe otherwise is arrogance. It is hubris. To think that we are deserving of eternal life on our own merit. Eternal life is a gift. Something, not something we deserve, like wages, but something given to us freely out of the love of the Father. Indeed, consider the sentiments of Revelation 5, verses 2 through 4. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open the book, to read the book, neither to look thereon. Fortunately, our salvation does not depend upon our own worthiness. Rather, as I said, it is the gift of unmerited pardon, born out of the love of God for his children. If Satan can get us to doubt the gift of God, to think that we must earn salvation through our own worthiness, then we will end up declining his sacrifice and miss out on the inheritance that God is in store for us. An even more insidious attack upon the human psyche is to make us doubt whether we are at all lovable. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but this is a problem that's much more widespread than you may think. Psychiatrists have made a fortune of a people not feeling loved. Some people grow up in cold, non-demonstrative families where parents show their children little affection. They grow to adulthood, starve for affection, and become vulnerable to anyone who will show them the love they so deeply crave. Yet at the same time, they have have learned a negative self-image a negative self image that they are not lovable not worthy of love further because love was not modeled in the home they never learned and it is a learned skill they never learned how to love someone else consequently they have problems in relationships and are often rejected which only reinforces what the negative image that they are not worthy not lovable in the process it's another vicious, vicious cycle. Some try even to earn another person's affection with gifts or with deeds, only to be abandoned by that love object as soon as the love currency dries up. The problem of love is similar to the problem of worthiness. It is a gift given by another over whom we have, over which we have no control. We cannot buy it, we cannot earn it. It is something that must be given freely. Now, this desire for love, it's not just a longing. This is an actual intellectual, a psychological need that we have. It's a real need for the human psyche. Notice psychologist and educator Abraham Maslow created a model in the form of a pyramid that ranks human needs on the journey to self-actualization. In his paradigm there's only two needs, two kinds of needs that supersede the need for affection. There are our physiological needs and our safety needs. After those, the m- next most important is the need for affection. The need for affection. It is the third tier, uh, the third from the bottom tier in our being. Uh, in the pyramid that forms this foundation for further development. Without the sense of being loved or being able to love, we do not develop true self-esteem or the ability to empathize with others. If Satan can get us to doubt our lovability, then we may be, again become despondent, depressed, and despairing, eventually even giving up on life entirely. I don't know how many teen- teenagers I've seen that ready relative chunk in the towel, give up on life because they had a heartbreak in high school, put their entire life ahead of them. Love is that important. Extremely rare is the individual who can live single and transform life alone into life as one. The third attack on the human psyche is made uh, is to make us doubt our own salvation. Is Christ's offer of redemption real? Now, I've done a lot of bad things in the past. Am I truly forgiven for all the things I've done? This is what you may be thinking. I've done a lot of bad things in the past. Am I truly forgiven? Can Christ's blood really cover those kinds of sins? Did my baptism take, or was my toe sticking out of the water? Was I like, fully immersed? I know uh, here, in Ta- here in Tulsa, we don't have to worry about that because our ministers make sure that we are fully immersed under that water and held there for quite some time. <laughs> I remember Lawrence uh, uh, twenty-eight years ago now. Lawrence held me down for what seems to be like an enormously long period of time. Of course, he probably thinks it wasn't long enough. <laughs> Um, And Jacqueline, didn't he dunk you twice? Yeah. So in in Tulsa, we have no doubt about the authenticity of our baptisms. Okay. Our ministers make sure of that. Okay. Um, Another question was, uh, does the minister have the credentials or the spiritual or moral authority to baptize me? Do I need to be rebaptized? What is this thing called the unpardonable sin? With all the things that I've done wrong, have I committed it in the process? I pray and I fast. But there's just just one sin that I just can't overcome. That one sin means merely that we are weak and that the temptation is strong. However, our weaknesses... In no way diminishes the redemptive power of Christ's blood our weaknesses are not the cause of the problem I mean are, are the cause of the problem not the, re- the failure of Christ's blood if Satan though can get us to doubt the authenticity of our redemption or get us to think that we've already lost it then we may again become guess what despondent depressed despairing thinking I'm already damned anyway. I might as well enjoy this life as much as I can while I've got it. Then we stop going to church. We stop observing the Sabbath. We stop attending the feast. We stop reading the Bible. We stop praying. What's the point of doing that anyway if I'm already damned? We fall back into our old life or worse, turning away from anything that is holy. We harden our hearts. We sear our conscience and we bring about the self fulfilling prophecy of the unpardonable sin. As I said, we've been studying Nehemiah in our Bible study. There's a wonderful hope, though, that we hold out. Our God, there is no God like our God. And He holds out this offer, He holds out our arms to us, regardless of how many times. We fall away. I'm going to take the time to read this. Nehemiah 9. Verses 6 through 30. Long passage. But you'll see why. I can't say it better. You. Even you. Are Jehovah alone. You have made the heavens. The heaven of heavens. With all their hosts. The earth and all the things on it. The seas and all that is in them. You preserve them all. And the host of heaven worship you. You are Jehovah, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldees, and gave him the name Abraham and found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Petherite, the Jebusite, and all the uh, Jer- Jergesite to give it to his seed. And you have performed your words for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea and gave out signs and wonders upon Pharaoh, upon the servants and upon all the people of the land. For you knew that they were acting proudly against them. The Egyptians were acting against them. So you got yourself a name as today. And you divided the sea before them and they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. And their pursuers, you threw them into the deep like a stone into the mighty waters. And you led them in the day by a cloudy pillar and in the night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the way that which they should go. And you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant, And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought forth water for them out of the rock for for their thirst. And you promised them that they should go in and possess the land which you uh, you have sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly and hardened their necks and did not listen to your commandments. And they refused to obey, neither were they mindful of your wonders which you did among them. But they hardened their necks. And in their rebellion, uh, appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But you, our God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and did not forsake them. Yea, when they had made the even when they had made a molten calf and said, "This is your God who brought you out of out out of Egypt," and had worked great blasphemies. Yet you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them in the way, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and give them the way that they should go. You you also gave your good spirit to teach them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not become old. Their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them in the corners. And they possessed the land of Sh- uh, Sion and the, la- and the land of King Her- Hezbon and the land of Og, King of Bashan. And you multiplied their sons like the stars of heaven and brought them in the land concerning which you had promised it to their fathers that they should go in and possess it. And the sons went in and possessed the land And you humbled the people of the land before them, the Canaanites, and gave them into your land with the kings and the people of the land so that they might do with them as they would. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells already dug, vineyards and olive yards, and fruit trees in abundance. And they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Notice this pattern, rebellion, forgiveness, rebellion, forgiveness. You delivered them into the hands of their enemies who troubled them. And that, <clears throat> did I miss a word? I did, okay. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law beh- uh, behind their backs. And they killed your prophets who testified against them, who turned them to you. And they worked great blasphemies. And you delivered them into the land of their, hand of their enemies who troubled them. And in, in the time of their trouble, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. And according to your manifold mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you left them in the hands of their enemies, so that they had to the, the rule over them. But they returned and cried to you, and, and you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them to your law, but they acted proudly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your judgment, which if a man do, shall he live in them? And withdrew the shoulder and hardened the neck and would not hear. And many years you had patience with them, testified against them by your spirit, by your prophets but they would not hear they would not, they would not give ear and you gave them into the hands of a people by the lands but for your great mercies you did not completely destroy them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God conclusion doubt is a most insidious strategy and the wiles of the devil are strong but we do have a defense against it. Our first defense is this wonderful, God-given rational mind that was provided that we haven't polluted it with fables and stupid superstitions, that allows us to see through many of these assaults. Second, we have the Holy Spirit working through our conscience to guide us away from such doubt provided that we don't shut out that still, still small voice with a den of confusion. Third, we have the Holy Scriptures, these, and now in an electronic version, um, as a shield and sword against such attacks. But interestingly, it takes an act of faith to use this. It takes an act of faith, the very thing that Satan is attacking, to use it. Most importantly, most importantly, we have an ever-faithful, loving, covenant-keeping God who like a father with outstretched arms is ready and willing to take back his prodigal children when they have strayed if they would but repent of their wicked ways but again it takes an act of faith to believe that let us not lose faith let us not fall victim to the methodology of doubt